We are continuing our walk through 1 Corinthians, which is a letter from Paul, the Apostle Paul, the church planter Paul, to a house church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And yes, ancient Corinth is not modern Columbus. But we have been learning throughout the weeks that we are that there are more overlaps, that we have more in common with ancient Corinth than we might have first realized. So for instance, last week we saw how the Corinthian church had a celebrity complex. And this looked like two things. An over-elevation of their leaders and an, and an over-identification with their leaders. They over-elevated their human leaders. To a a place that they should never have been placed. And they also over-identified with their human leaders. To such a level that it was causing division and polarization within their church community. And Paul is pointing out that this over-elevation and this over-identification of human leaders was exactly what Corinth does. And yes, it's exactly what we do in America. We over-elevate and we over-identify And it causes polarization. We know this. We're living in a cultural moment of polarization. And Paul is simply saying to Corinth, and he would say to us today, don't let that slip into God's house. And he did that with an image, a striking image. A rich biblical image that you would see and encounter all throughout these pages in the Old Testament. We are God's field. And so any growth, any beauty, any goodness that comes out of this community is because God grows it. And that, to Paul, is what will strike at the root of polarization. It's a striking image. And what Paul does this morning in the text we're about to read is he basically gives them another image, equally striking. And so let's explore this second image together, starting in verse 9. This is God's word. I'll read along. I'll read it and you can follow along. You are God's field, first image. God's building. Second image, verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 
Do you not know that you, you all, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Recently, my wife Josie and I watched this movie called Columbus. Not Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Indiana. Anybody else a Hoosier? I'm a Hoosier. I was, I was raised in Indiana. Okay, Columbus, Indiana. Uh, if you didn't know, Columbus, Indiana is an architectural mecca. Especially the work, and Ryan, I hope I say this right, Aero Saarinen. Yes. Aero Saarinen is a Finnish architect who did a lot of work, was commissioned by Columbus, Indiana, of all places. It's okay if you didn't know that. Okay, because I grew up next door to Columbus. I have relatives who live in Columbus and went there to visit them regularly, and I didn't know it until I watched this movie. And this movie, what it does is it tells the story of a young woman who shares her her love of the buildings in her city with an out-of-town visitor. And in the process of this film, in the process of watching this movie, I think the movie did its work because I started to fall in love with these buildings. The buildings in this movie are their own character. It's just clear. In fact, it may even be the primary characters. And the human characters are secondary. And what also happened, and Ryan can attest, as well as Andrew in this room, who are both professional architects, I started to fall in love, not just with these buildings, but buildings in general. So much so that I would ask, hey, what can you give me to read on architecture? What can you give me as a primer on architecture? I want to know more and more about the buildings that are around us. I became really obsessed with buildings. I started to notice them for the first time. Turns out one of our leaders at Hope actually made the pilgrimage to this architectural mecca while in high school. Okay, so I'll let you guess which one. I'm now sensitive to architecture. That's what's happened. This movie, if you watch it, will do the same. And not just in my city, but also in the scriptures. As I read my Bible, I'm noticing over and over again that architecture, that buildings figure prominently in God's word. So the library of scripture begins and ends with building plans. So in the book of Exodus, one of the very first books that we have in our Bible, half of it is a verbal blueprint for a house. The tabernacle, God's house, God, the architect, capital A says exactly as I show you the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, so shall you make it. This is God the architect speaking to God's people. Verbal blueprint. 
And then uh, the, the Bible concludes with the dimensions and the details of the new temple. The new temple, which is the whole cosmos renewed and restored by, by Christ himself. The new heavens and the new earth. And even Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, seems obsessed with architecture. Which kind of makes sense, actually, if you think about it. He was a tent maker, which in those days were people's homes. As Saul, a faithful Jewish man and Pharisee, he probably loved the Jerusalem temple. What was called the second temple. Because the first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed. And then a second temple was built. And then it was actually even built further by Herod. And I'm sure that he loved that temple structure. And what is also striking is that in his letters, one of his favorite ways of describing his ministry and our ministry as God's people is building up. Building up. And all over his letters, and you can, if you want to have an interesting study, a Bible study on your own, I would encourage you to do this. All over Paul's letters, look for architectural language. Things like foundations, things like building up, things like stones. It's all over the place once you have eyes to see it. One of the best architecture podcasts is called 99% Invisible because the premise is that the things that we build and design are 99% invisible to our eyes. You can see them, you just don't notice them. Same is true with Scripture. When you encounter Scripture and you look for the building metaphors, they're all over the place. Corinth, where this letter was written, to which... Paul wrote, uh, was well known for their buildings and their architectures and their temples. And so when Paul heard about jealousy and strife that was going on amongst this small community of Jesus, one of the first church communities in the Mediterranean, who were following the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they were gathering in homes, When Paul heard from afar that there was jealousy and strife and division and polarization occurring inside this small gathering of like 60 or or a little bit more maybe. He uses architecture to address the issue. He says in verse 9, you are God's building. Paul doesn't treat... Sin in the church, discord in the church, by yelling at them. But with a rich image, you are God's building. In general, Paul does this all the time. And I think this is instructive. The way to change, according to Paul's method, is not through sheer human willpower, but allowing God to define you. That's how you change. You are God's building. It's like God is saying, chew on that. And watch my spirit change you guys in how you're acting. You are God's building. Paul doesn't ask, what is wrong with you? He asks, who are you? Who are you? More accurately, whose are you? You are God's building. So how does this obscure identity statement, we are God's 
building. How does that strike to the root of our issues? Whatever it is you're dealing with this morning, whatever issues we have as a community, let's not pretend we're a perfect community and that our sin doesn't go horizontally as well as vertically. It does. So whatever it is that's going on amongst us, whatever it is that's going on individually before God, whatever it is, how does this image get to the root? That's the question that I'm interested in. And let's let Paul answer the question this morning for us. I see three amazing ways God's building our identity could change us. And the first is this. God owns you. You are God's building. This means first that God owns you. God owns us. And this is a controversial statement. Can we just acknowledge that? Especially in the West, especially in the United States of America, because self-ownership is our highest ideal in our country. I mean, the most influential person behind our founding ideas as a nation is John Locke. And he wrote this. He said, every man has a property in his own person and has a right to decide what would become of himself and what he would do. But right here in verse 9, if you take a look, Paul says, you actually don't own yourself. God owns you. And if you were to flip the page and look at chapter 6, verse 19, you would see Paul say it even clearer. He says there in verse 19, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When we rented, my wife and I and our family, we did not own the structure that we lived in. And even today, we have a house, but we do not own it. The bank owns it. It just really, it owns it. I mean, it owns it. Trust us. Um, Paul is saying something even more radical here. He is saying, we don't own ourselves. And as a community, God does. Which is a hard pill to swallow. But when you swallow it, when you accept it, there is so much comfort and freedom in this reality. The Heidelberg Catechism's first question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is biblical. And it echoes what Paul says here. Because the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, self-ownership would be our only recourse if there wasn't a true and perfect owner. If God wasn't true and perfect and safe, then the statement God owns you would be tyranny. But what if He's your creator and what if He's good? Then it's freedom. Self-ownership is tyranny. 
Self-ownership is tyrannies. Just think about this. Self-ownership enslaves. When we live as if we own ourselves, we are our own building. The reality is that we are owned by our desires. This is, a, this is a very important principle that we see in Scripture time and time again. Have you ever felt like you can't say no to what is harmful to you and to others? And conversely, have you ever felt like you can't say yes to whatever is healthy and whole for you and those you love? That feeling of obedience to our desires is what the Bible calls slavery. And unless God purchases us for Himself, we are enslaved to our desires. When we looked at chapter 6, verse 19, He says, You are not your own because you were bought with a price. And the image that Paul is utilizing is Greco-Roman slavery. And he is saying, you were enslaved to a tyrant. And God himself purchased you away from that tyrant, which is your sin, your desires, and Satan himself. And now you're God's property. And that is a good thing because there's no such thing as self-ownership. We have to be owned by something. And it turns out we're terrible owners of ourselves. Uh, God who made us is the best owner. Self-ownership is enslaving. Uh, God ownership is liberating because the f- like true freedom, think about it this way, is not doing whatever you want, but true freedom is living according to your created purpose. If true freedom was doing whatever you want, we would say that the fish that my son catches when we're in Michigan that's flopping on the dock, gasping for air, is free from the water, but dying. When we define the terms of freedom, and when we think freedom is doing whatever we want, we die. On the other hand, what if that fish was created to breathe water? then it is most free according to its created purpose when it's swimming in the water. And the same is true for us. True freedom is living according to God's created purposes in our lives. Self-ownership just enslaves. God-ownership is liberating. And Paul here talks about one important way self-ownership destroys not just our soul, but our communities. Remember, Paul is saying we are God's property in order to get to the root of polarization. Uh, Many political theorists today are saying that raw self-ownership is the root cause for our contemporary polarization happening in our culture right now. Raw self-ownership. It's no different in the church. It is no different in the church. But when we realize, as Paul says, that we are all part of the same building that God owns, then we will attempt to work things out before we dig trenches. 
So that's the first reality. God owns us. The second reality is this. God calls you. So the image that we are God's building is amazing. But then Paul sort of blows our minds, at least mine, when he says, you are not only God's building, but you are also builders on this building. Isn't that incredible? God calls you a building, but then calls you to build on his building. Which to me is a mind-blowing thing. That God would actually do that. That God would save me and redeem me, own me, and then say... Oh, and by the way, I'm going to entrust you, Joe, with all of your issues. I'm going to entrust you with my building project. And he says the same to you. Yeah, I'm going to rescue you out of your issues, out of your stuff. And I know, I know your issues. I know, I know who you are. I know who you are better than you do. I know how broken you are. I know how sinned against you've been. I know how much you've sinned against others. God says, I know all this. I save you by grace. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you now to start building my house. That's crazy. But that's what God does. What's even more crazy is... God seems to want us to rest and revel in our weakness as we build. Like we ought to, as as all of us are ministers, we're a priesthood of believers. All of us ought to be saying, I don't know what I'm doing, but God has called me to do this and he's going to empower me to do it well. That's how we talk. We don't say, oh my gosh, I'm I'm an amazing craftsperson here. No, we say, God, you're going to have to build this. God gives us dignity. He gives us privilege. When he says in verse 10, take care how you build. We are all called to build. The Apostle Paul was called to build. The leaders in the early church movement were called to build. But so also were the people of God. If you're saved by Jesus, you are saved to build. And you're saved to build using the gifts that God gives you. Paul's going to have a lot to say about these gifts later in this letter. These gifts aren't reserved for leaders like me. And y'all are just lay people. No, no. We all have gifts. We're all called to use them in this building project. Paul's going to tell us how to build in this letter and in this section that we just heard. Uh, but he do, and he does so, but first with a warning. He warns that there are two wrong ways to build God's house. The first is this, when we build on the wrong foundation. So verses 10 and 11 say, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So let each one... Take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Any building that doesn't have Jesus as the foundation isn't God's building, you see. So we can build on the wrong foundation. We can start to become a community that's not anchored in the reality and the work of Jesus. We can be called a church and not be anchored in reality and the work of Jesus. Paul says that's, that's, that's just a different house. I don't know that house. 
In Paul's day, they would have had all kinds of ways of thinking that they could have gone on. They could have said, you know what? Epicureanism as a philosophy would be a really good thing to build on. Or Stoicism as a philosophy would be a really good thing to build on. Or perhaps um, ethics would be a really good thing to build on. And, you know, right living would be a really good thing to build on. And they had all these things that they could draw on. And Paul's just simply saying, if you do that, just know you're no longer God's house. God's house has Jesus as the foundation. And number two, a wrong way we can build, which I think is a greater temptation for us, is to build on the right foundation, but with the wrong materials. Verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D day, when Jesus returns, will disclose it or show it for what it is because it will be revealed by fire. And note this, in Corinth, there was about 100 years prior to the writing of this letter, a massive fire when the Romans sacked the city of Corinth. So they know it's in their collective history, just like we have in our collective history, great fires. If you live in San Francisco, you know in 1906, there was a great fire that took down almost everything. So with the Corinthians, the Corinthians knew there was a great fire that took down almost everything. And so when Paul is saying, look, there will be a day when fire is going to expose the weak architecture. Just know that as you build. Paul's not saying in this section that we are saved by our ministry. Notice he doesn't say that. He says you will be saved because we're only saved by Jesus, not our works and definitely not our ministry. But he does say it's possible to see all your ministry efforts come crumbling down. So even though the fire of judgment doesn't touch us, if we're in Christ, that same fire of judgment can touch our ministry. And Paul implies, well, no, he doesn't imply. He says straight up, only non-combustible materials will survive the combustion. A fire. Uh, sometimes my boys uh, will build cool Lego spaceships, uh, which are amazing and intricate, and then leave them on the floor when they go to school. And then my littlest Lou um, gets to them. And that is kind of like a day of reckoning for these Lego buildings. How well were these things built? We will discover by the end of the day because Lou is about to play with them. Um, If they are not built well, they will not survive. I remember the first time my wife and I stayed at the famous Fairmont in San Francisco. And when you walk into the famous Fairmont in San Francisco, there are these huge marble columns licked by fire. You can tell they've been licked by fire. And they're quick to tell you with posters and all their literature that they were one of the only buildings during the fire of 1906 and the earthquake that caused it to survive when everything else was laid waste. Why? Because it was built on really solid materials. There was an architectural integrity to that building. And that is all Paul is encouraging us to consider. Build with your best. I live in a home where the previous owner was a do-it-yourselfer. God bless him or her. But there are some things in there that our building inspector scratched his head about. And all Paul is saying is build 
with your best. We're not to cut corners or to use shoddy materials. What is our best? Well, Paul is purposely vague. And so let, let's just, I just want to encourage you. I don't want to be more precise than Paul is. But I would encourage you to let the image sink into your heart. And ask the question honestly as I engage in ministry. Whether it's in this church or to my neighbors. Is it my best materials? I like to think of it this way. My best materials is sort of the intersection between the expression of my gifts that God has given me and my reliance upon grace. Because Paul says in verse 10, some important words about our ministry. Do you see them? He says, according to the grace of God given to me, I built. So to me, my best in ministry is when I am not sort of doing ministry to sort of justify myself in your eyes. Or the eyes of God. And this verse is actually really challenging for me because I can look at the past 15 years of my ministry and I can be honest with myself and I can say so much ministry since God has made me a Christian. Is so much anchored in insecurity before other people. And simply doing things that other people admire is a powerful idol in the life of a pastor. Okay? And so instead, what if I built with amazing materials, which is a confidence in God's gifting that he gave me and a reliance upon God's grace? How powerful would that be if we stopped doing ministry for the sake of sort of proving ourselves? How powerful would it be if we did ministry instead out of a rich sort of being with God as opposed to merely doing for God and for others all the time. And finally, the final implication that we are God's building is the assurance that God is among us. Paul calls us no ordinary building, but God's temple. He says it in verse 17. You are the temple. And Paul drives this point home in two ways. He says, God the Son is in us, and God the Spirit is as well in us. And so, God the Son is in us. Paul says in verse 11, if you look down at the text, that as God's building, our foundation is Jesus Christ. And when we hear that word foundation, we probably think of a concrete foundation, which is true enough. But I guarantee you that everybody who heard this in Paul's day thought of something else. The foundation stone, which was at the center of the temple itself. The foundation stone, which, is, which was at the center of the temple itself, was called the Evan Ha Shetaya. And it was the most sacred location in the world. It was called the foundation stone. The stone was thought to be where the ark was placed in Solomon's temple. And then in the second temple, after the first one was destroyed, this stone was thought to be where the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the Day of Atonement. And to this day, it's where Jewish men and women, it's the direction to which they pray. Towards this stone. It's called the the, the belly button of the universe. The stone. The navel of the cosmos. 
It's called the axis mundi, the, the, the sort of like the, the whole cosmos rotates around the stone. It's where heaven and earth kiss. Today, it's at the center of the Dome of the Rock. In Paul's day, this is what people said of the foundation stone. As the navel is set in the center of the human body, so is the land of Israel and the navel of the world, situated in the center of the world, and Jerusalem in the center of the land of Israel, and the sanctuary in the center of Jerusalem, and the holy place in the center of the sanctuary, and the ark in the center of the holy place, and the foundation stone before the holy place, because from it the world was founded. That was what people thought when they heard foundation stone. And so Paul is saying that Jesus is the center of the universe and he is right in the middle of his people. He's in us and he's among us. This most holy location where God is most reliably present, where the heaven and earth kiss is among this gathering. And all the gatherings in Columbus and all the gatherings in Ohio, and all the gatherings in the United States, and all the gatherings of the world that worship Jesus. Just let that sink in. But that's not all. Because if you look at verses 16 and 17, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so when Paul wrote these words, think about this. The temple was alive and well. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. But when Paul wrote these words, the temple was a thriving thing. And there were were just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pilgrims that would draw near to this temple. And would offer their sacrifices and would go to their pilgrimage. Uh, there are millions, like just tons of people doing that. And yet, Paul says, as that temple is actually functioning, Paul says, that temple is no longer where God is. Think about how scandalous that is to the original audience. He's saying, you are that temple. Now, you as as sort of a a combination of human beings, sinful human beings, are the temple of God. Kenneth Bailey, who ministered in the Middle East his whole life and so reads 1 Corinthians in a unique way, he taught me how radical this statement was in Paul's day. Because in Islam, if you think about it, the equivalent of the temple is the Kaaba in Mecca. And Muslims pray towards it and make pilgrimage to it, just like the temple in Paul's day. And so could you just imagine as a thought experiment, if somebody were to come on TV and say, you are all now the new Kaaba, a Muslim teacher. The pilgrimage and prayers, no more. Could you imagine how like that would create a riot? That would be groundbreaking. And I I would love to offer to you that that is the exact same shock value that would have been read in this letter. You are the temple now. And he's talking about you and me and them. 
We are where God is. He dwells among us. And this gives us two things to close. Number one, to the vulnerable, it's assurance of God's vindication. And that day, people took sacred architecture very seriously. This is an observation made by another person. Just because human beings are God's sacred architecture now, as we gather as a church, doesn't mean and doesn't change how seriously we should take it. And so Paul says if anyone harms, abuses, causes to stumble one of his blood-bought lambs, his building, his temple, they will experience that same destruction. This is a warning to would-be destroyers of God's vulnerable people. It's also an assurance to those who are vulnerable, especially in God's house, because God is going to work his vengeance. He just will. It is a promise of protection. And to the unsure, this is assurance of God's presence. You don't need to search for God. He's among you. He's here. We have His Spirit and we have His Son. And so stop striving and start resting. Stop talking and start listening. Stop seeking and open your heart to the reality of God's presence right here and right now. Lord, we do that even now. We ask God that you would remind us that your presence is most reliable in this location as your people gather. And wherever they gather, whether it's in hidden churches where there's great persecution or in mega churches, wherever your people are, you are among them. Where would that be a comfort to us? In Jesus' name, amen.